the gospel lesson, which is our text this morning for our sermon as well. It's the very beginning of the good news according to St. Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just as in what seemed like ordinary circumstances so many years ago, we just read about in a river with people dirty and dusty going out to be washed, you opened the heavens and you spoke a fresh word by your spirit to the people gathered there. Would you open the heavens this morning? Would you come and speak to us by your spirit? Would you give us a fresh message for this new year and for our life, for this day and for all to come? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And if you were here, you may have heard, uh, I think Brian mentioned in my absence, that uh, I was, was able to go out of town and take my family, uh, my, my immediate family, six of us, to see my extended family in Washington State. Uh, they live by the Puget Sound, right on the edge of what's known as the Olympic Peninsula, if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's one of the largest uh, national parks in the country. It's uh, in the middle. There's no roads going through it. There's actually no air traffic. Uh, they've actually gone there and done studies. It is one of the quietest places on the planet, actually. Like the decibel levels regularly, it's just, there's no industrial noise, uh, just the noise of animals and nature. We were able to spend a couple days out in the Olympic Peninsula, actually, uh, and that was nice with my brother and his wife and my wife and our kids. Uh, and then the rest of the time, we were still in a quiet, quiet, cute little suburb called Gig Harbor, uh, and I would spend the mornings staring out past evergreens, a, a little piece of the Puget Sound, the water out there, uh, and it was lovely. I just loved that quiet so much after what has been such a busy year last year, uh, and all the voices that are in my own head and all the voices that are around us and often ones that make you feel bad uh, and put you down, but also just the noises at the end of the year of, oh, we got to get everything done. There's so much to do, and uh, all the, the last minutes of you know, transferring the ownership of this building and purchasing and all this stuff and all the, the praise that people gave me. I mean, I'm not even used to a lot of praise as a pastor. Everyone's just like, we, you did it. You know, this is finally, it's so great to have a home and all this excitement, and it was really important just to practice silence. And to take a few moments to reflect 
And see, silence, you probably know, is not really the absence of sound. The practice of silence for us is actually just the turning down the volume of our ordinary sounds, of the voices that we spend our time listening to and uh, being energized by. It's turning down the volume of those things in order to create the conditions where you are open and available to hear new and often more subtle sounds like wind, the whoosh underneath water, whispers, cooing. And we need this because our minds and the world is so noisy. You hear every week warn you about turning down the volume on these man-made noises that are profit-driven and come to you mainly through the news and social media ecosystems. Voices mostly of fear and finger-pointing. And then there's all these other voices that you walk around and hear all the time. These voices that may go something like one of these for you. What is wrong with you? Why do you always do that? Are you ever going to learn? I'm just really, really disappointed in you, that's all. Whoa, it looks like someone really laid into the holiday treats. Leave some cookies for Santa. You can be such a jerk. You're so controlling. You think you're so special. You're a hypocrite, a poser, a fraud, a wannabe, a loser. You're too black. You're too white. You're too short. You're too wide. You're not from here. You don't belong here. Or maybe it's your own voice. I'm so stupid. I don't think I'm cut out for this. I'll never change. I'm not worth it. I'm just sick of myself sometimes. These are the voices we hear often every day. They're the voices sometimes of parents and children, of teachers and students, of the news, entertainment, advertising industries, family, friends. And if we're not totally cynical or totally despairing, then we use these voices to motivate our New Year's resolutions and all of our schemes to improve ourselves or our world this year will finally be different. Turn them into motivation. And yet, these voices tear us down and wear us out and destroy us. And even if they do lead to some temporary change, it's a change that is skin deep. It's motivated by fear and shame rather than by confidence and hope and love. And so we need to silence some of these things. Turn down the man-made man noises in order that we might hear other sounds. And so there's one I want you to think of specifically today. And I will tell you, part of my goal is that uh, you'll never uh, experience the city the same way after this sermon. Okay? Big stakes, right? When you're walking around, I, live, I happen to live on a very busy avenue and almost just underneath the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. I've tested the decibels. They're extremely high. Uh, you can't walk around New York City without hearing honking and cursing and uh, airplanes and every other form of industrial noise you can possibly imagine. And so it was interesting when I came back and was hearing all those noises to realize that one of the most incessant noises I hear uh, over by my house and walking around Brooklyn on my daily walk uh, is a soft, quiet sound that if you stop for a second, you can hear. And that is the cooing of pigeons. Do you guys like pigeons? No? Show of hands. Who loves the pigeons and thinks it's great? New York City thing, right? Who hates the pigeons? Everybody? 
So it's a little more on the hate side, right? They're like the, the avian rats or whatever, you know, flying rats. Uh, but New York, New York City pigeons, man, these, these things, they get a bad rap. I, I've, I've, I've just been disinterested in them my whole life. At worst, they fly into your head like they did in the lanes on Seinfeld or something. You know, they're just around doing their thing. Uh, but they're there, and they coo, and you may have heard me say this, but I was really surprised this year, after all these years in New York City, to learn something new. Uh, and that is, this came from a book called Wild New York, A Guide to the Wildlife, Wild Places, and Natural Phenomena of New York City. That was, to my surprise, you're going to be like, duh. <laughs> I had no idea that they're not just pigeons, that they're actually rock doves. And somehow hearing that they were doves changed them for me. I was like, doves? Well, now that's a, that's a deep biblical image. And not just an image, a deeply biblical animal. These pigeons, the New York City pigeons, are called rock doves, and they were first brought to this country from Europe, probably during the 1600s. Uh, their original status here was that of a barnyard animal, raised mostly for the table, to eat pigeons. These captive pigeons somehow struck out on their own, and because they're rock doves, their natural environment and habitat is the clefts of rocks in the desert and other places, they found that they liked it here, because we have built a lot of concrete stuff with a lot of ledges and little nooks and crannies for them to hang out in. And so they found that they like urban environments, and they also like not having to work too hard for a meal, which we are happy to give them through our trash and other ways. And so their populations, dwell, their populations were happy here. They dwelled here. And then when we decided that we didn't like to eat them so much anymore, they've exploded, right? So they're all over the place. But think about this. That means rock doves, they were captives, but they are also survivors. They like rocks in the desert. Now they find themselves in a city, and they've found a way to survive and adapt to this new environment, this man-made environment. They're also communicators. You probably know the story uh, and, uh, about homing pigeons. And that means they're also guides sometimes. They've been out there, and people will follow them home. Uh, they'll follow the message home. And so they've communicated. We've used them to communicate with one another, uh, to be guides. We see them as survivors. And also they, of course, in some ways, uh, in, at least biblically, are makers of peace, peacemakers. Let me walk you through for a second this picture of the dove, the sign and symbol. And I want you to hear what it communicates to us. Hear what the sound of the pigeon is meant to remind you of the dove. First shows up the picture in the first chapter of the Bible. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit that creates and sustains all things giving life. In Genesis chapter 1, the word used is the, the, the earth at yet was just darkness and full of void. And yet God's Spirit, it says, hovered over the waters. That word is the word they use later for like a bird flapping its wings, hovering just over something. And so the Spirit is given, and it's feminine in that, in that text, the word, is given this picture of this sort of feminine bird-like presence hovering over the creation as God uses the Spirit to bring life out of all things. There it is, flying and flapping its wings over the waters. And God says, behold, this is good. Everything they make, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then they make mankind. And it's very good. And God says, see, I've given you everything you need to prosper, to be filled with joy and purpose. And so go out and be blessed and bless the whole world. This was where the dove first showed up, or at least this picture of the spirit as a bird. But then, of course, by Genesis chapter 3, we decided not to listen to this voice of God or be underneath this spirit bird picture and to nestle under its wings, but listen to other voices, the voices of the tempter, 
that says God doesn't love you. God hasn't given you everything you need. He wants to keep you down. Why don't you go out and strike out on your own? And so we did. And plunged the world into chaos and ruin just within a few chapters of the Bible. And so the Spirit shows up again. And this is just in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. We see the flood. And then in chapter 8, we see the flood subsided. God is going to start over and remake humanity from the beginning, a new Adam and a new Eve, if you will, with Noah and his family and a new creation, all the animals representing there, and they're on this ark. And then the flood has subsided, but they don't know if there's land, so he's a sailor out there at sea, wondering if they're ever going to find a harbor. And I'll just read to you what happens. Genesis 8, chapter 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned him to the ark. She returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. He knew he was at land and could go. Do you see this beautiful like companionship with Noah and this dove, and the dove coming out to communicate, and then to bring a sign of shalom, Again, peace, yes, the absence of conflict, but a new world, a new flourishing, a new opportunity to start over, to begin again from the beginning. That all we'd plunged creation into decreation was now recreated, and he could start over again. And the dove communicated this to him with the olive leaf, and then saying, come follow me, there's land over here. And so they came out into this world. They followed the direction of the dove. This voice of assurance, of calm, almost cooing to him, it's okay, follow me, we have a new start. And therefore, sailors throughout history have used birds to guide them to dry land. The dove is also, and there's just a couple more, these are shorter, but the dove is also associated with the sound of God's people and their suffering. The Dictionary of Biblical um, Archaeology said it this way, Dove imagery is, is utilized in several of the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible. The low, cooing sound of a dove served as a mournful imagery to evoke the suffering of the people of God. Hear this, Isaiah chapter 38. I cried like a swift or a thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. Or later in Isaiah, we all growl like bears and we moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. And Ezekiel. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains. Like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each for his own sin. And so the dove is there to associate with us and our crying and our mourning out for God to come and save us and deliver us and help us. It's, of course, also associated with what we call atonement. That's an English word that was invented to describe some of the words in the Bible. It means at one the things that are done in the sacrificial system and then in Jesus to make us, when we're not at one with God, when we've wandered away and we're separated from him, to be made again at one with him, atonement, at one Again, the Dictionary of Biblical Archaeology says, doves were more than just a soundtrack for a people who'd fallen away from God. They were also the instrument of atonement. And we can go into this, but you see that they are 
a means by which people bring a sacrifice, especially the poor, those who can't afford the unblemished, beautiful lamb. They would bring these little doves and offer them to God. That's what Jesus' parents offered when they went to the temple as poor people. And if you go to these ancient sites, um, both biblical and non-biblical, you go to these ancient sites of sacrifice, they find what's called dovecotes, or what we call like a pigeon coop. They find them associated with temples throughout the ancient Near East, and especially in Jerusalem. These were places where they raised the doves for sacrificial offerings. And then, of course, as we see in this passage, the dove is associated with Jesus from Nazareth, from Galilee, from the backwoods, from nowhere. It's associated with his voice saying, this is the Christ. This is the anointed one. This is the one who my spirit rests upon. The one full of the spirit. The one for new creation. In fact, the creator itself. See, by the time of Jesus, the dove was already rich with symbolism and many interpretations. Again, representing Israel, the atoning sacrifice, suffering, a sign from God, fertility, and the spirit of God. All these meanings or more were incorporated into the Christian use of the dove iconography. We're used to hearing the sounds of pigeons, but what about when you hear those pigeons, you think about the dove of God? Get back to our passage. John appears and he's preaching repentance. It means change your input, change your frequency, change what you're listening to, change the voices you're obeying and paying attention to and are driving you, the ones that you're always following. Change your mind, change your direction, turn around. Change, repent, that's what it means. John Henry Newman, a theologian, wrote, here down on earth, to live is to change. To be perfect is to have been changed often. And of course, we don't like change. We don't like religious words like repent, but we don't like non-religious words like change, right? But John shows up and he preaches saying, repent, the kingdom is here And I'll remind you, our passage, he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I am. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And just then a voice came from heaven, and it called out, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, water is for washing off dirt in half-dressed vulnerability. Water is humility. Water is saying, I have gone astray. I listen to the wrong voices. So John is shocked that Jesus identifies with us by being baptized. But don't miss that Jesus says, I'm with them. Whatever they have done, I go with them. I identify with. I take upon myself. They are people on the other side of the river that need to pass through the river to be cleansed, to be back in God's presence. Then I, too, go out in the wilderness, and I go into the water, and I identify with them. I go into those waters of flood and drowned and will die so that I might come out again and lead them to a land of new life. These are my people. And so Jesus identifies with you and with me. Their poverty, mine. Their distance from you, mine. Their finitude, mine. Their dirtiness, mine. I will fulfill their rightness, their righteousness. 
because I am making their story mine and I am making my story theirs. In fact, I'll write a new ending for them with them. See, Jesus is identified with God in this passage, but he is also deeply identified with humanity, with you and with me. And what you need to hear is that at that moment of the baptism, at that moment of identification with us, God the Father booms out in that act. This is beautiful. This is good. This is very good. I'm going to send my spirit down upon you. This is new creation. This is almost like an Adam with his Eve, Jesus with his people. And I call out, it is good. It is very good. I'm so happy. I'm pleased with you. You are my beloved. I love all of you. I love you. I love you. I love your people in and at one with Jesus, the Christ. This is the voice that calls out over to you. You are my beloved. And I am well pleased with you. And that means that God is to be the center of your story this year. God's voice is to be the one that you hear above all others. God's voice is the one you turn down all the other frequencies in your head and in your actual radios and lives so that you can hear the voice of God saying, you in Christ are my beloved. I am always well pleased with you. And this is your identity. It's not what you can make up a new outfit, a new persona, a new whatever, a new career, a new relationship. No, it's this identity that is given as a gift by grace through faith from God to you, the beloved, at one with Jesus, united to him, those with whom God is well pleased. This is a gift. And your baptism is meant to be proof of this. Proof. Peter puts it this way. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah... While the ark was being prepared, in which a few were brought safely through water, he says, and this is a little bit of ellipsis, but baptism, which corresponds to this, to Noah and the ark. This baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is to say, you're supposed to remember your baptism and say, no matter how I feel subjectively, objectively, God passed me through the waters and he spoke over me. And so, Peter continues, it's meant to be an appeal to God for a good conscience at all times. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. It means that you always have a fresh, new start. Every minute. You look back to your baptism and you listen to the voice of God saying, no matter how you feel, no matter how much you want to give up on America or the world, or humanity. (laughs) How much you want to give up any day, you listen to this voice that says, you are my beloved. With you I am well pleased, and I am recreating all things. We have a fresh start in and through Jesus. This should give your life a, a kingdom purpose, a hope that you are always, no matter how much you drift, going to be put back on the path towards shalom. In this new heavens and new earth, this place is going to be remade. We should both have hope for it. And that should give you purpose, not just for a New Year's resolution, but that this year you will, through change, be made more and more like Christ, more right, more perfect. Because you're beloved, not in order to earn his love, but because you are the beloved and you are already, he is already well pleased with you, then you can continue. This is the voice we need to hear. See, all of your New Year goals all of your striving, deep down I think it's a desire for two things. It's a desire for what I've called shalom often here. It's a desire for things to be right with you 
with your relationships and with the world. And it's also to know deep down that the world's going to be okay, you're going to be okay, and primarily that you're loved. As human beings, your deepest need is to know that you're loved. And so, whether it's already happened or it happened next week, and you're like, new year, new me, and now you're like, new year, same old stuff. Then, remember your union with Christ. Remember the waters of baptism. Refresh and rewatch over and over again this image, this voice, this eternal new start, and this new world available to you through God. This voice that will speak through the Bible and sometimes through nature and through others in this church, through your own spirit and through the spirit, speaking, you are the beloved. Believe again today that Christ died. He left a garden to go into a city where he was murdered and tortured. He was buried in a cleft rock, the same kind of place a dove likes to dwell. But he rose again. He brought new and indestructible life and flourishing to us. He adapted He survived just like those pigeons. He communicates now by his spirit and so in Jesus we have a new start. We have creation and continuous recreation. We have peace and provision. We have an advocate and a guide and a messenger. We have a sacrifice that makes us at one with God. We have chiefly a voice, the voice of God proclaiming us always the beloved. And so now, every time you see a New York City pigeon surviving, thriving, Remember that it is an image of the resurrected Jesus Christ. It is an image of you in Christ. The Holy Spirit of God declaring over to you, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Listen to its coup. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.